Hello, I'm David Mosscroft. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In June, Canada lost its bid for a temporary seat on the United Nations Security Council. The loss came after four years of campaigning for the spot and is reminiscent of Stephen Harper's 2010 failure. Back then, we lost to Germany and Portugal. This time, it was to Ireland and Norway. Each time, we've been left asking, why? Previously, going back to 1946, Canada had won each of its bids for a UNSC seat. What is it about Canada's contemporary foreign policy that has led to the two losses? And beyond that, do we need the United Nations Security Council? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Caroline Dunton, a doctoral student in political studies at the University of Ottawa who studies campaigns for seats on the United Nations Security Council and a researcher with the Centre for International Policy Studies. Let's start with a look at what these campaigns entail and why states want to pursue them in the first place. So why would a country like Canada want a seat on the United Nations Security Council and why would we go after one? So there's sort of two avenues um, that uh, motivate states uh, to chase after a seat on the Security Council. So the first is really the self-interested stuff. um, And the second is in terms of contributions they can make. So from the self-interested perspective, um, it's a really important way to sort of have this symbolic status, gain recognition from other states, and demonstrate things like your independence from other countries or your allegiance to other countries. So for some states, uh, it's a way to signal where you stand on issues related to um, the permanent five. So if you want to make it clear that you are in Camp Russia or Camp United States, it's a good way to signal that. On the other hand, it's also a good way to try and sell yourself as independent or not part of a particular power block, to indicate yourself as a regional power. So, for example, um, I'm looking at some archival documents these days um, where in the early days, in the late 1940s after the Second World War, um, the United Nations is being created. Canada lost its first election in 1946 um, and later won in 1947. And a lot of the conversations in those documents uh, between Canadian diplomats and politicians at the time um, are about noticing, you know, how Canada made itself very independently strong during the war, militarily and politically. um, And part of what seats on the council can do are indicate its independence from the British Empire, from the Commonwealth. Um, to indicate that Canada can stand on its own two feet. Um, So obviously that doesn't really apply to Canada now, (laughs) but um, historically those are some of the benefits uh, that states look for. Um, In terms of other things that you can get from it and sort of the practice of the Security Council, um, a big one is diplomatic access. So with the permanent five Mm. states, Russia, the U.S., the U.K., France, and China, um, they have their top diplomats there, It's well-connected to the center. Um, So having the access to those countries and their top officials is important because if you're, you know, one of the 193 members of the UN, you might not necessarily be able to do that. And if you don't have necessarily a special relationship with all of those countries, if you have a tension with one of them, um, it can help you sort of gain access. And then on the other hand, you become 
um, sort of a hot commodity because others know that you have that access. So you can sort of use that as leverage with other countries as well. Um, and then in general, it's, it's the big table. There's an active agenda. Um, there are constant briefings and conversations that you can insert yourself in. You can advance your interests. You can prove your competency on particular issues. Um, you can participate in all sorts of initiatives. Um, so it really is a balance between what you can get for yourself, how it makes you look, and also what you can do, how you can prove yourself in some ways. Well, I'm thinking about this in the context of Canada. I mean, presumably access to the United Kingdom, France, and the United States isn't a big issue for us. I mean, I, sure. I wonder whether or not it would help us with Russia or, or China. But I'm not entirely convinced either way. But you know, it was billed, at least in the press, as something that Trudeau, the Prime Minister Trudeau, had staked his, his, well, his image on, something that, that um, had become largely symbolic, something to distinguish him from Stephen Harper. There was a lot of sort of symbolic value to that. I, I, I don't entirely buy that either. But I am looking to sort of understand what it is of value that we couldn't get somewhere else that we would get at that table. And, you know, I'm thinking in part, as I saw someone say on Twitter that, well, the United States already has a seat at the United, United Nations Security Council. Why does it need a second one? So, uh, you know, wh what is it about Canada in this moment that we thought we could benefit from at the UNSC that we don't already have somewhere else? The United States point is really interesting because I think I think that is part of our problem is, you know, we run on this campaign of multilateralism and cooperation and building partnerships. And then if you look through sort of our record at the General Assembly on major issues at the UN, we really are the the seat that follows the Americans. Right. Um, and so I think I think that that's a larger conversation that we can perhaps have in a little bit. Um for us, I, to be honest, I'm not sure what this government in particular was seeking to get out of it. Um, we're in a really weird moment right now, as you mentioned, um, because this is only really the second election that has been particularly partisan uh, for Canada. And that's mm. historically, that's both historically for Canada and internationally an anomaly. So... Um, if you look at one of our competitors, Ireland, they didn't have a government until 48 hours before the election. They, <laughs> they went to the polls in February um, and they managed to keep up a winning campaign without a government because it, um, in most, especially in our grouping, the Western Europe and others group, um, it becomes a cross-partisan initiative. Um, and that is the case sort of throughout Canadian history. If you look at, you know, what's known as our best campaign in 1988, um, that was run when Joe Clark was Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, Stephen Lewis was the ambassador to the UN. Um, and sort of across the NDP, the progressive conservatives and the liberals at the time, um, everyone was involved. Um, and had there been a change of government um, at the time, it probably would not have looked any different. Um, so it's interesting, especially uh, because Canada notably joined the race late um, after Trudeau was elected. Uh, and the campaign lost in 2010, um, Stephen Harper became prime minister sort of in the middle of that campaign in 2006. Um, and so we've seen major changes in the position on the council and the approach to getting there or not getting there with the change of government in this country now twice in a row. And so 
given that there's such a strong difference at this point, it seems, in what the parties want out of it, I would I would think at this time that the Conservative Party of Canada hasn't really changed its position, that they don't really care about the council. Um, and I think certainly Trudeau's position is very much, it would have been nice, but I'm not really sure what we're going for. Um, but it's going to make it harder and harder to gain a seat the longer this stays a partisan issue. Um, yeah. Well, so it's funny because, you know, to me, the, the contests are in some ways reminiscent of one another and in other ways quite different. So on the one hand, I got the sense that, as you sort of indicate, the Conservatives didn't really seem to want it that bad in 2010. The Liberals seemed to want it more in 2020, but we did better in the last contest than this one. Uh, by a little, I, I, we made it to the second ballot at least. In yeah, so right? I can I can sort of explain the technicality of how that works, um, but I can let you finish this question first, and then I can. Well, I, I'm just curious about in what ways 2010 was similar to 2020, and in what ways it's different, and whether or not, you know, because it seemed like we we didn't mm. really want it that bad in 2010. We did better than we did in 2020 when we seemed to want it at least, at least pretended to want it, or publicly said we wanted it more than we yeah. did in 2010. Um, so I think in particular, um, what was notable about this election was the caliber of competition. So in 2010, um, Germany, uh, so there are two seats available then. There's two seats for our group that come up every two years. Um, and there tend to be three competitors, um, especially in the years that we're running, three competitors for those two seats. So last time Germany took one of them right away. Um, and then it was down to Canada and Portugal. And I think a lot of Canadians, um, without meaning to offend Portugal, uh, saw Portugal winning that seat over us as, you know, surprising or for perhaps some commentators a little bit insulting, which, again, I don't insult Portugal. I don't know. Um, but at the same time, um, Canadians who see sort of the long and rich history of uh, Canada at the Security Council, at the UN more broadly, um, being at the table when the institution was designed, saw it kind of strange that a country smaller than us and whose um, participation as a democratic country in the United Nations is much more recent. Um, whereas this time we were up against Ireland and Norway. And Norway, like Germany, tends to really outperform everybody on a lot of metrics mm. at the UN. Um, and Ireland's been working on this for 10 years. Um, and they've been doing so certainly um, with the backing of the EU um, and the resources of the EU as well in their corner. Since Brexit, they've sort of Interestingly enough, I would say the dynamic has worked in their favor, especially amongst other European countries, um, because, you know, having another EU member on the council as the EU lost the UK um, mm. and a country that's not afraid to resist uh, the UK. So Ireland, I think, had a lot in its corner. They also really campaigned strongly on you know, being a small country, being a independent country, not trying to um, oversell themselves. And I think Canada on all sides is a little bit afraid to admit that we are, at the end of the day, a small country. Um, and perhaps we have a bit of an oversized ego. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's, I definitely want to get into that. And I want to get into yeah, that by way sure. of talking about our foreign policy or, or such as it is. But first, I want to sort of drill down on, on the votes themselves, because here's yes. the thing, like we won 108 votes. Norway won 130. Ireland had 128. So it's not, you know, we, we lost. There are questions to be asked, but I wonder how much we can, how many, you know, how, by way of conclusion, what we can draw, given that we lost by 28 votes. Yeah. So um, I mean, it's not that much, right? It's not like it's like nobody voted for us. I mean, it, a few votes swing a different way and all of a sudden it's a coin toss. Yeah. And so the way that it works is that you require a two thirds majority of the General Assembly um, to win a seat. So there's two seats. Um, and so I believe this time there were 191 uh, voting countries. One had abstained. Um, and so the threshold was exactly 128. So to get a seat, you had to hit 128 votes. Ireland got exactly that. Nor or Norway got two more than that. And what you'll notice is that if you add 108 to those two numbers, you don't actually get everybody use their two votes, um, mm. all 191 countries. So the reason for that is that each of the three competitors, um, where they have the two lines on their ballot, are probably only going to write in themselves. Um, and they're going to leave the <laughs> they're going to leave the other one blank because you don't sure. know you don't know who your biggest competition is. So why would you put them one closer uh, to the threshold if you don't have to? And then um, there were 13 other countries that also left a line blank. And so that is usually countries who are sort of close friends who have an unofficial agreement with a country. Uh, so. Interest Scandinavia and uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, um, and I think Iceland um, all will do that for each other. They'll only vote one for each other and then leave the other line blank. Um, so that probably happened about 13 times. I have seen, um, we don't know who voted for who, but I have seen sort of rumor that um, usually Australia, New Zealand, and Canada will all vote for each other and leave the other blank, um, but that New Zealand also voted for Ireland. Um, but ultimately, when you have the 128 threshold, we were one vote away from going to a second round, at which point mm. the dynamic really changes. So Ireland um, at exactly 128, um, if they had one less vote, we would have had a second round. And then it's a bit of a different competition. Um, so you don't know necessarily, let's say Ireland had 127, you wouldn't know whether that one vote that could have got them to the threshold would have come from Norway or Canada. So it doesn't necessarily say a lot about Canada right off the bat, um, because it could just be that Ireland and Canada both didn't make the threshold because someone else had promised Norway. It sounds a little bit like student council politics. Yes, um, it completely is. Okay. Um, and so not, not to dismiss yeah. that there are substantive issues, but I mean, the the. Uh, the sort of uh, at the top level, it, it reminds me a lot of student council. Yeah, for sure. And so the second round, um, there's something called the second ballot strategy, where um, knowing that you're going into a second round, you want to sort of pick off other countries, you want to be a lot of countries second choice. Um, that was how we lost to Portugal last time was I believe in the third round of voting. And what would have been interesting about this election was because it wasn't all done with 193 representatives in the room at once. Um, 
there would have been time. The vote would have been the next day for a second round. So there would have been, um, you know, Canadian diplomats on the phone all night. Um, so there would have actually been probably like 18 hours for a whole second round of campaigning that doesn't usually exist. So um, the African seat went to that between Kenya and Djibouti. Um, it was pretty dramatic. Um, but so, yeah, we were very close both to... Um, both in terms of losing, but also in terms of possibly going to a second round. So I want, I want to get into the substantive reasons for that, for sure. the foreign policy reasons for that in a minute, but I want to stick on the campaign for a second. What what about the campaign worked and what didn't work? I, I mean, obviously we lost, but I mean, I, I, I'm wondering what the dynamics of the campaign itself at the UN and globally looks like. I mean, we hear a lot about trips that were made around the world were not made. For instance, the prime minister in the, didn't go to the Caribbean. He had issues mm-hmm. to deal with here. Um, he had a disastrous India trip, although I think that's often made to be a lot worse than it actually was. And so I wonder, you know, how that intersects with the campaign and whether or not we act, had just completed a good campaign or not. Yeah. So I think, um, first off, I think it was, you know, impressive that especially joining the campaign in 2016 um, and sort of racing to the end, um, I think it was an admirable job there. So these Um, are really long campaigns then, right? I mean, yeah, um, they are. And certainly I think it took a while for at the political level, the government to sort of get it together and give a lot of investment and direction. I understand that Ambassador Blanchard um, in New York was very popular with his um, fellow ambassadors. Um, he's a very like he's a very personable guy, um, so that's a really really good quality to have um, in someone in that position. Um, and so I think someone like him with a team of you know smart and hardworking people behind him, I think in terms of personnel, there was nothing but good things to say about them. Um, I think in particular, though, they were somewhat under-resourced, from what I understand. There were only maybe 10 to 11 at varying times full-time employees working on this, Um, which in the grand scheme of things isn't actually that many people. Um, And I think in terms of the campaign messaging from the political level, um, it was somewhat vague. So we had five themes. Um, And the theme was Together, Ensemble. Um, And so there were the five themes, economic security, gender equality, um, combating climate change, uh, enhancing multilateralism, and working towards peace or some variation thereof. Um, But each of them were left somewhat vague. They were, if you look at the the public-facing website, um, its sort of final form wasn't finalized until late 2019. So the messaging, especially sort of the political messaging, took a really long time. Um, And when you look at that messaging as well, of course, it is a little bit partisan. They made sure to throw in real change and a few other sort of trademarked liberal expressions. Um, But in the sort of vagueness of the content of the campaign, Um, And certainly some of the questions about how committed we are to multilateralism, I think that gave a group of hardworking people not a whole lot to work with substantively. Um, So I think certainly they made the best of what they could. And, you know, 
as a lot of people have said, you know, they should be really proud of their work. But I think um, especially at that sort of higher level, like what is the direction and the vision for Canada right now and going forward? Um, it was a real it was it was a real uphill battle, I think. All right. Well, let's dig into the substantive bits now then, too. So I, I saw a, a piece in The Guardian where one observer, I can't remember who it was, suggested that Canada's foreign policy was sort of a dilettante foreign policy. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, I, the, the sort of areas that I think get a lot of attention, obviously, are um, the United States, plainly China and different rows with China. Absolutely. The, uh, Saudi Arabia, us selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, uh, the mission in Mali, which mm-hmm. as as uh, has been pointed out, wasn't quite an, as ambitious as past peacekeeping missions. Uh, then, of course, there is also our attempt to uh, push forward on global climate action, such as it is, and uh, global maternal health, where I understand we actually do quite well. So there, there are lots of bits and pieces, I think, that are in tension with one another. But I wonder, you know, d- does that add up to a coherent foreign policy, or is it that the world looks at it and says, we don't really know what to make of this? So I think coherence is a it's a word and it's a goal that I really struggle with sort of as someone who is trying to make sense of this country. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, you know, coherence isn't something that you're going to achieve because different situations have different priorities, but at the same time, you know, there comes a point where um, your reputation follows. So, Things like selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. You know, you can say that we may have particular interests or priorities in one region of the world that are different from another, but you can't be a country who wants to promote peace while selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Or to claim you're feminists. Exactly. Um, It becomes, you know, completely unconscionable, uh, especially given um, the civil war in Yemen. So I would say it's pretty incoherent. Um, and I think part of that is um, part of that, I think, is what comes into sort of the public attention. So something like um, the maternal newborn and child health initiative that you mentioned. Um, so as part of the current feminist international assistance policy, um, that's a really big part of it. And it's a really revamped program from what existed under the Conservatives. So the Conservative Party had um, a maternal newborn and child health program, um, and they talked a pretty big game about it, but it was both evaluated um, internally and externally as being quite problematic, um, wasn't um, particularly supportive of reproductive rights, mm. um, abortion, um, essentially giving giving women choices about their health. Um, and so very quickly in the development of the feminist international assistance policy, um, that was changed significantly. That was flagged as a really big thing that needed to be overturned. Um, and civil society organizations, I think, put a lot of work into that. Um, so that's something, at least in the sort of Ottawa world, um, got a lot of public attention um, and got a lot of attention from NGOs. Um, so I think that's the sort of spot where, okay, you know what, there's some really good work going on here um, is because it was very much pushed by civil society. Um, whereas some other issues 
um, that seem to perhaps be in opposition to that might be ones that don't necessarily make it um, into, you know, questioning of the prime minister or the minister or things that Canadians are going to bring up um, when given the opportunity. Uh, on some issues, it's it's plain to me that we're wrong and we could be better. Yeah. So Saudi Arabia, to me, is absolutely an obvious example of the fact that we shouldn't sell weapons to countries that are thug regimes and in, in the midst of an unconscionable war. And certainly and fam- that, an induced family. Yeah, I think certainly the most recent reports of that they're not even paying for them. Right. Um, raise even raise even more questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, to, yeah. I've got nothing but contempt for that whole thing. Yeah. But I, I see us and China in a slightly different way. So, you know, I, I look at Canada being caught to some extent between the United States and China. Yeah. I look at the United States, the, the decline of the, I think with the, you know, decline of the hegemon, it's not coming back. Um, caught between them. We mm-hmm. need to, we need to trade. We need security. We need somehow to find a way to punch above our weight. Then we get caught with something like Bung Wong Joe on the one hand and aluminum tariffs on the other. Uh, how do we navigate something like that? I mean, I, I've got to cut us a little bit of slack. I mean, I think we're, we're somewhat gutless on China. But, I mean, how, how do you, as, as Canada, possibly navigate that in a way that's constructive? Saudi Arabia is different to me because that's obvious. Yeah. That's, that's a no-brainer. But w- with China, that, that seems far more complicated to me. Yes. And, and so I think part of the entanglement of the U.S. and China um, in particular is that when you make you know, you try and make things better with China, you upset the United States more and vice versa. Um, And I think sort of consistently Canada has always faced the challenge of um, how close do we want, um, how close do we want to be in terms of our policy positions, um, our voting records, our um, trade choices, et cetera, with the United States. Um, And interestingly, I think with Donald Trump, um, you kind of have a bit more um, of a both a better and a worse situation, um, given that, you know, not doing things with the United States, the consequences are much more unpredictable. But at the same time, it's possible that he and the rest of the administration won't even notice if we take, you know, a different path or a different position on things. Um, but it's very hard to tell. Um and so I think I think there is, though, a lot of room, especially coming out of the pandemic that we're in, um, to separate ourselves from the United States a little bit more, um, especially on issues that aren't necessarily bilateral issues. But I think other countries see that um, on international crises, on um, issues of peace and security, we're a little bit too cozy with the United States. And there's a lot of there's a lot of room to maneuver there. So, for example, because um, you also mentioned um, the prime minister going not going to the Caribbean. Um, so over the past, you know, since 2017, uh, there's been an ongoing crisis in Venezuela, and Canada's position has quite honestly been, you know, pretty hard line with the Americans, um, and not popular amongst a lot of Canadians paying attention for good reason. Um, But Mexico has kept a pretty hands-off approach, um, especially also on Bolivia. Um, And so CARICOM, the Caribbean Regional Organization, I can't 
speak for them, but their position has very much been sort of of non-intervention, of not taking the sort of right-wing American side. And, you know, when Canada at the same time wants their votes and wants their approval, um, but is sort of very in step with the United States, that becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if that would have come up if the prime minister had followed through on his visit. Um, but those are the kinds of things that I think other countries start to see through, um, especially when we talk a lot about, you know, finding new multilateral partners, finding new forms of cooperation, um, looking to non-traditional partners. Um, well, when, you know, a multilateral organization that we don't usually partner with, you know, someone like CARICOM, um, takes a completely different position to us on something that is ultimately a little bit regional to them. Um, that's something that that's something that they see. Sure, that, that, which which makes sense to me. And I mean, I, you know, I when I, when I look at the whole picture, I mean, there there are places where I say, okay, well, you know, on Venezuela we could have decoupled. On China, we maybe didn't want, maybe we wouldn't want to. Maybe on on yeah. China, maybe we want to stand up for Taiwan. Maybe we want to stand up for Hong Kong. Maybe we want to talk about Magnitsky sanctions, which, you know, has been in the news and so on. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, because we're in the midst of a hostage situation, quite plainly, that that makes sense to me. Uh, but more broadly, um, you know, if we're thinking forward to the, the, what the next world order might look like, because I think the liberal order yeah. is obviously in peril the hegemons well the current hegemons on its way out who knows what's going to replace them them uh so who knows what that's going to look like but when we're trying to think strategically about how we position ourselves it's just not obvious to me where we should go but before we get there i want to go back and and link this back to the unsc and say for sure how does that fit into all this and is it still important is it still relevant what work is the unsc doing generally that we ought to be uh, focused on, you know, do we still need it? And if we need it, do we need it in the way that it is? For instance, having five permanent members doesn't make a lot of sense to me, fetal members, right? So, I mean, you know, how do we wrap our heads around the, the current status of the Security Council? Yeah, so, you know, the Security Council first came into being in 1946, following um, sort of negotiation since 1944. And pretty much since its inception, Everyone's been trying to reform it. How do we fix this somewhat broken institution? Uh, this year in 2020, I believe, um, it's noted as having the most deadlock and lack of resolution on issues since the end of the Cold War. So things aren't looking great. Um, but at the same time, um, no one wants to replace it. Um, it's a bit of a collective action problem too. Um, And if we had a better organization, that would be great. Um, But I'm not sure how we get there. (laughs) And at the same time, there's actually a lot of important stuff that does go on that I think gets overlooked, um, especially when we like to, you know, have conversations about the the more political fun stuff where, you know, people can take partisan swipes at each other. So um, the big sort of elephant in the room always is the veto. Um, But it's important to remember that the veto is a negative force. So it is to say no to something. Right. To say yes to something, you need, I believe, nine out of 15 votes. So you actually need 
um, a number of elected members to say yes. Um, so, you know, even if the permanent five want to um, want to do something, they can't do it without some cooperation amongst the elected members. And the veto actually puts, ironically, smaller elected members into an interesting place um, to be mediators, to be the go-betweens um, between the big powers, to try and bring them to agreement, to do the sort of diplomatic work um, between perhaps the United States and China, who are not likely to agree. Um, so you can prevent vetoes from being used. You can bring countries to agreement, um, compromise. So it's a really interesting place to sort of see those diplomatic skills flexed. Hmm. Um, so an example of this, um, in 2014, um, this is an example I seem to use a lot, um, but it's a really good one. So Australia was on the council and Australia, I think is really, at least under the, the last few governments that they've had for all their faults, um, really proactive, um, at the UN. And so when the Malaysian Airlines flight was downed in eastern Ukraine, um, that was a really, really tough time for the council to figure out what to do about that. Certainly, you know, Russia, the United States, China, um, all had very different views on that. Um, but Australia actually managed to negotiate um, agreement, um, avoid using the veto, get a resolution passed um, and do the sort of immediate search and rescue investigation work, um, get a temporary ceasefire, um, and manage that crisis. So if you're proactive about it, when emergency situations come, it's really good to have talented, um, and driven elected members. I don't know if you can call a country talented, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, well, the people you can, you can call, certainly you can call the sure. diplomats talented. Sure. So, you know, that's an example of where, an elected member really, really comes through. Similarly, over the past, you know, very sadly decade of um, war in Syria, it has been very much the labor of elected members. So New Zealand was one of them, I believe Luxembourg, possibly the Netherlands, but I'm not sure about that one. Um, in terms of keeping up the humanitarian aid, so food aid, medical aid, et cetera, um, monitoring and keeping that approved at appropriate levels um, in Syria. So the day-to-day -day work of the council is also huge. And I think in the same way that it's easy to see parliament as only, um, you know, question period and the bits that we see on TV, I think it's easy to fall into that trap with the Security Council as well. Right. So they have a ton of committee work and working groups um, and sort of consultation work like a parliament does. Um, they are constantly monitoring areas of violence and conflict in the world, doing regular updates and briefings, monitoring visits. Um, they have a number of not only committees and working groups that report to them, um, but working relationships and reporting relationships with other UN organs, um, all military-related issues and peacekeeping-related issues flow through the council, as well as a whole number of international tribunals in the International Court of Justice. Um, and then also very importantly, and there's an example here, is sanctions re regimes. Right. So um, if you think about the Iran deal, um, 
that was obviously actually a huge victory for um, the council. Um, the JCPOA um, was implemented through a UN resolution. Um, obviously, it is no longer um, in existence. It's no longer active. Um, but one of the big things on the council agenda right now is trying to figure out what comes after. Um, so it's a space where multilateral diplomats are able to still talk about that issue with the United States, even though very obviously the administration has moved on, um, and also sort of keep communication up with Iran um, and with all parties that were involved in the deal. Um, so a lot of that work on going, okay, what comes next? Um, how do we manage this? Is there a way to revive it? Sort of looking forward, that's a big part of what the council is working on right now, as well as, of course, you know, almost every area in the world that has some sort of violence or conflict right now. So if you're committed to doing the work um, and putting in the resources to be a really active member, there's a lot of opportunity and you can't always predict it. Like Australia would not have known that a plane was going to fall from the sky. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to um, both respond to emergencies, but also be also be very proactive um, in what is actually a really, really busy institution. So it seems to me, I mean, certainly when you put it that way, it makes good sense as, as an organization. I mean, you know, that required uh, reforms notwithstanding. I mean, obviously yeah, getting rid of the veto members is not going to happen. Although I'm sure they wouldn't look the same 2020 if it was designed as in 1946. But yeah. okay, so let's say then, okay, we, we see the value, we see the, the, the place in the world. We want it, you know institutions like this. We want to funnel issues through them. Canada wants to be a part of that. We're looking towards the next go round. Should we pursue a seat again? And if and if we should, what should we do differently, both in terms of the campaign, but also substantive, substantively in terms of our foreign policy? Just a couple of small questions to bring us home. <laughs> yeah, so... No pressure. What Solve our foreign policy. <laughs> what's really interesting to me is that, you know, since 1946, we've been having this conversation about how do we fix the Security Council? And it's the same conversation over and over. Unfortunately... Canada has been having the same conversation over and over about its foreign policy as well. Um, in 1977, when we um, had recently, I believe, won a seat that year um, for an upcoming term, uh, we held a conference in Winnipeg on Canada and the future of the United Nations. And that conference included a number of UN officials, including the Secretary General, um, very important sort of Canadian personalities, both in and out of government. And... This was um, essentially what happened here was there was a point where participants concluded that Canada doesn't have a real foreign policy, has no clearly defined objectives, and they're not sure where the government is going. And the engagement with uh, multilateral institutions seems to uh, wax and wane. Mm -hmm. So that's the exact conversation we're having in 2020. Um, we do a lot of talking about multilateralism, about new partners, about cooperation, um, about all of the different fora that um, we sit in. But I'm not sure how committed Canada is to those things. And especially as the world is consistently less and less predictable, less and less stable, 
Um, I think we need to have sort of a serious conversation about what that commitment is going to look like. Um, and that will involve, you know, especially making decisions about our foreign policy relationship with the United States. Are we willing to, you know, perhaps take a few more risks there um, in order to build stronger relationships with coalitions of other small countries? Are we willing to perhaps, you know, pivot some of our dependence to a large body, especially on trade, um, to the EU rather than the United States? Um, what is the sort of balance between our dependence, um, both economically, security-wise, um, and perhaps the other things that might benefit us globally? Um, so, again, sort of that idea of are we a second American seat? Um, do we want to be a second American seat everywhere or do we not? Do we want to represent a particular global constituency? Do we, do we even want to admit to ourselves that we are a small country and perhaps we have more like with the other small countries than we do with the big ones that we're constantly trying to impress? I think there's a real conversation to be had um, in terms of what multilateralism um, looks like. In terms of the Security Council itself, um, again, since the 2010 campaign, um, the Security Council campaigns have become a particularly partisan issue. And I don't think that we can win one if we continue to treat it as such. Certainly, um, you know, that was a pivot made by Stephen Harper, but I think Justin Trudeau very strongly leaned into that, um, perhaps to the detriment of future campaigns. So there's a lot of talk about doing, you know, a sort of multi-party consultation or conversation about both foreign policy and future seats, um, and a lot of debate around what the best medium for that is, who the best participants are. Um, I don't know that you're going to get any agreement, um, especially given, you know, the questionable direction um, that the Conservative Party of Canada may go in. Sure. Um, and I don't think Canadians particularly pay a lot of attention. So there isn't a sizable audience um, and there aren't a whole lot of incentives to reassess foreign policy right now. Um, but the longer that it stays sort of an ad hoc issue on all sides, um, you know, the more likely we are to sort of default to old positions to American positions, um, and the more the more difficult it becomes to actually um, become a sort of independent, cooperative, um, and almost a bit of a risk-taking presence in international organizations. And so it becomes hard to become a multilateral partner um, if we're not willing to think about what that means. Um, and I think a future Security Council campaign isn't something that should really be on anybody's radar right now. I think we have much more important things to move on to. Um, but I think it should tell us a lot about how other countries perceive us, how other countries want to cooperate with us, um, and how we may be understood in other multilateral spaces. That's as good a place as any to call it a day, because I, I could go on and on and on, as could and I. on forever and and even because I do well, well really quickly then actually I just want to touch on this and yeah, curious to sure. hear what you think I mean obviously part of the context in which we're making this decision is a 
changing global order and democracy is up against the wall around the world. We're in a global democratic recession. Absolutely. And, and we have very tough decisions to make about the sort of relationship that we want to have and whether or not we want to diversify on trade and security. On security, I keep getting told that we can't really do much. We're so deeply bound up with the United States on interoperability and strategic shared strategic interests. There's nowhere to go. On trade, I'm not so sure if that's true. And, and plainly, I think Canada's future is going to require, you know, diversified trade to the extent that it's possible. And I guess we're pursuing that to some extent. Uh, when, when we're thinking about foreign policy, do you think it's possible for us to have a serious conversation about a new security policy, a new trade policy, and a new philosophy of, of multilateralism all at once? I mean, is there a way to fit, given who we are and where we are in our historical relationship with the United Kingdom and the United States, for instance, is there a way to fit this puzzle together in some sense that would would ultimately um, benefit this country? I mean, I, I just I struggle to think of a way we can manage all of that at once in some sort of consistent, coherent way, because I, I worry that a lot of the ad hoc stuff is just us scrambling to survive. But I don't know how long we can keep that up. I agree. I don't think we can keep that up very long, um, and I don't think. Um, you know, I think a major reconsideration of these things will involve a major reinvestment in the apparatus that does that work. Um, so, you know, understanding that places like Global Affairs Canada are under-resourced um, and people are overworked. And for a lot of people, there's a lack of job security. Right. Um, and there's been a major loss of internal expertise um, and so I think there's going to have to be a serious conversation as well as to how we reinvest in those things. Um, but I, I don't know if this is poorly informed, but I think a, a diversification economically will come a little bit easier than security wise. Um, because I think even as we, you know, we have our new NAFTA, um, even as we are renewing our deep commitments with the United States trade-wise, um, Trump is clearly willing um, to burn that for us at any point. Um, it's pretty unpredictable. And diversifying our trade relationships um, with to be with other countries, um, I think, is both in our interests long-term, but also in terms of, you know, not having as many fires to put out um, every few months um, and continue that sort of ad hoc cycle. Um, and then there are a lot of real questions about what is gonna happen both trade-wise um, and in terms of other cooperation with the UK um, in a later post-Brexit world. Um, mm -hmm. What is our trade relationship and other economic cooperation going to look like? Um, and as they continue to um, sort of pursue more isolationist ends, um, are we willing to follow the UK and the US, you know, the isolationist leaders, you know, over the edge of the cliff? Or are we willing to try and find perhaps strength in numbers with other countries who are in similar positions to us, um, and you know where 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 is the balance for those things? 
Okay, for real, that is a fantastic place right. to to wrap it up because I again, I have so many more thoughts, but you will we'll have to do it again. Yes, for sure. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks so much for for coming on, uh, and as as always, to everyone who's listening. Uh, thank you for for tuning in, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to sort out Canada's foreign policy for you. And as always, you're welcome. And um, hope everyone is keeping safe, physically distanced, and as uh, healthy as they possibly can be right now. And we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.